Welcome to Voices of Australia, a podcast where we explore different perspectives on how to build a cohesive society. Today, we're turning our attention to mental health, a topic that weaves itself into every corner of our society. As we unravel the intricate tapestry of mental well-being in Australia, we'll examine the prevalence of mental disorders, spotlight disparities in different communities, and discuss strategies to foster resilience and happiness. Consider this. A striking 44% of Australians have experienced a mental disorder, with mental health challenges spanning from anxiety to depression. These invisible battles are fought daily by millions. Alarmingly, the suicide rate amongst First Nations peoples is almost double that of non-Indigenous individuals, a stark reminder of the urgent need for targeted support. Furthermore, the lack of data on mental health within migrant and refugee communities underscores the call for extensive research and culturally sensitive approaches. Our society's pulse is intrinsically linked to our collective mental well-being. It shapes our social interactions, strengthens our communities and constructs the bridges of understanding and cooperation that foster social cohesion. This episode may contain themes that some may find disturbing. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, please reach out for support. Joining us today is Tigist Kabedi, a senior counsellor at Polar Practice. A true force in the mental health sector, Tigist specialises in culturally responsive frameworks, delivering clinical therapy that resonates deeply with diverse settings. Her expertise extends to trauma-informed and intersectional approaches, creating a lifeline for marginalised communities. She is a driving force behind mental health advocacy, extending beyond the therapy room, reaching out to the wider community through health promotion and psychoeducation. With grassroots connections that have incited statewide challenges in culturally responsive health initiatives, Tigist brings to the table a nuanced perspective on mental health in Australia. Welcome, Tigist. Hello, thank you for having me. You're very welcome, and I'm absolutely delighted to have you joining us, especially on this particular topic. So I wondered, though, if maybe you could explain what what you mean by culturally responsive frameworks and how do you incorporate those into your mental health practice? Perfect. Um, I think, if it's okay, I might start with a bit of a story about how culturally responsive um, framework or practice um, came into polar practice. Um, so, in 2018, Polar Psychology was founded by Nasilithia Namlinga, a clinical psychologist, who wished to create a, um, a place where she wanted to see the world, but she couldn't find it. Um, a place where highly competent practitioners in their disciplines didn't have to leave their own identity at the door. And the same thing going for, you know, people who wanted to have well-being support. And... She um, created polar psychology as just a generic psychology practice. I joined in in 2019 and through our work together, we realized that, you know, while culture responsive practice incorporates an intersectional view that acknowledges, you know, the social, political factors um, that people's life exist in, because I think it's unrealistic to expect or to understand someone's well-being without understanding their intersectional experience and where they are at in terms of their context, where are they living and how that can impact their well-being and mental health outcomes. 
So we started doing that together. And then through that work, we realized that culturally responsive practice isn't just an intervention or a thing that you do when you're doing intake or counseling. It's actually a way of engaging and doing the work in a way that responds to the system and the history, as well as the individual. So in 2021, um, together, Nasalithi and I created Polar Practice, which incorporated this worldview of individuals existing within um, societies who have had an impact in terms of their intersectional experiences. So if someone who um, is an Indigenous person in this country, um, or a Black Indigenous woman, might have a different experience to a white Anglo background man in this country, which will also be different to someone maybe who has a refugee background or, or someone who's still an asylum seeker and is kind of pending, to, waiting to find out what their status is in this country. So by incorporating those things through polar practice, what we've done is we've taken culturally responsive practice and incorporated that as a way to engage the work that is both clinical in a sense, you're doing therapy, but incorporates communities, incorporates people around you, the, the communities that you serve, um, and listening to them and doing work with them. But then on the third layer, it's about creating systemic change to acknowledge the impact of marginalization and people's experience and trying to create systemic change, whether that be in the mental health system, the health system in general, um, so that future experiences of communities and individuals change over time. Thank you, Tigas. That's very thorough and great to start with the story. I think that's always really important. <laughs> and it's nice to hear about the origin of polar psychology as well. Um, I'm really curious though, um, well, I'm curious about a couple of things, but one of them is um, perhaps you might be able to talk about some really distinct mental health challenges that you've observed within different cultural communities um, because and, and how these affect people's overall well-being. I think, I think um, given how broad that is, I love a good story. I come from an oral <laughs> community who love, you know, using examples. So what I often talk about is um, how someone's identity impacts the way they experience the world, which impacts how they feel the world, right? So if someone's experiencing, let's say, challenges in school because um, maybe they experience racism, and they experience anger um, as a result of that. Um, I'm angry that I get treated differently. I'm angry that um, uh, another student gets a, a different outcome than I would for the same thing. And that translates in the workplace as well when they grow up. Uh, what ends up happening is that if we are not looking at someone's experience of racism as something that is impacting their well-being, we can then misunderstand that person's experience and be like, well, you just simply have anger issues. Or in a, maybe the more extreme version, well, you're just simply depressed because, you know, of what's going on. When if I incorporate people's worldview and world experiences, I can understand now that someone's anger is an appropriate response to someone's experience of racism in a particular context. So if someone's experiencing um, symptoms that look like depression or anxiety, and I can incorporate that in a worldview, um, then I can be thinking, is this a completely normal response to an abnormal situation? Or is this an abnormal response? And those are the differentiations that um, 
clinicians make. Um, but in order to make that differentiation, I need to be understanding why you're having a particular response. And unless we're doing that culturally responsive frameworks and practices, um, and we're looking at people's intersectional experiences, there's a risk of misdiagnosing or misunderstanding someone's experiences, which I think then has a flow-on effect in terms of people's um, experiences um, in the world and, and, and what those outcomes might look like and how, uh, so for example, someone not understanding that uh, someone could be really, really angry, they might be then diagnosed with something else instead of being like, okay, that is quite traumatic to experience racism. So let's understand how, how do we deal with the impacts of that trauma. Tikas, you mentioned racism and and yeah. it is um, often used in a, in a very broad sense, but then you talked mm. about people being treated differently. And I'm, I'm wondering whether or not it's worth talking a little bit about the individual experiences that make up racism and the individual types of responses that people have to racism rather than simply labelling a whole variety of different behaviours under that mm. term racism. Would, would mm. you be able to unpack that a little bit for us? Um, sure. So I think um, people can have a, ver- a variation of responses um, to uh, a, a racist incident or experience or experiences um, so some of those responses, I, I try to incorporate a trauma-informed understanding of what that might be. So because the experience of racism um, can feel that you are at threat, um, whether that is a real threat in terms of your life is physically in danger or uh, it's a perceived threat of I might lose my job or my positional standing, I'm, I'm not sure what the outcome of that people can often respond to these threats um, or uh, through uh, a survival response. So when we think of survival responses, we think of the five uh, most common um, survival responses, which is the, you know, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, and fake death. So let's use, that's the technical terms. Let's (laughs) let's talk about what that might look like. So if if someone in, in, in the classroom Let's say a young teenager was called a racial slur um, or, um, uh, yeah, let's say they were called a racial slur. Some of those responses um, could be that they push back against the threat. How dare you say that to me? Rah, rah, rah. Yell back at the person. They could withdraw. They could walk away, not engage. Um, They could freeze, stay silent. They could fawn, um, which is appeasing or appeasing the threat, um, which often means that you have to put your own feelings at hold and think about the threat as something that you need to um, please or appease so they don't harm you, or you can completely dissociate. So if I'm thinking of those from a trauma lens and from a trauma um, perspective, and I look at someone's behaviour in a classroom, um, I can think of, oh, what is happening to this person? And when we think of racism, we need to be thinking of if it's a young African boy who's in year 10, how many times has this happened to them throughout their life? How many times has this happened to their parents throughout their lives? Mm -hmm. 
And when I'm thinking about these responses, I'm not just thinking about this singular moment, but I'm thinking of the cumulative experience that happens to someone. So maybe when they're 30 and they're engaging in therapy and they're like, oh, whenever, you know, uh, when I experience racism, all I do is I just walk away. What are the impacts of walking away? What are the impacts of not being able to stand up for yourself or not being able to engage? So that's how I look at that worldview instead of seeing someone as simply cold and detached i think okay they might have had to walk away from things or uh, in another example they might have to have learned over time that they have to stand up for themselves so in my culture that loud black woman is very common but then we experience the stereotype of the angry black woman <laughs> so you yes. see the impacts of these things and how they can that can happen over time um and it, it's i uh, yeah. So hopefully that's answered your question. It, it has, and it's been really terrific to hear you articulate it so clearly. Uh, these are very much around the individual's behaviour, but the individual themselves, as you, as you point out, is is not alone. Effectively, they are they're existing within a family context, um, regardless mm-hmm. of what shape or size that looks like, and then also within a, a community. Uh, context and then mm-hmm. as you mentioned this sort of more broader world view of things so mm-hmm. all of those things intersect to inform how an individual experiences mental well-being is that mm-hmm. that right absolutely correct and uh, you can see how if we start to understand people's individual responses as a response to things that are happening externally around them we can see the patterns of behavior that moves from the individual all the way up to the system both how they how communities experience things, but how other communities experience other communities. Um, yeah, so I think that that's a that's a very specific example. Um. <laughs> but but it also um, highlights this how important how essential that culturally responsive framework is in and and finding a way to help others to um, effectively think in differently, especially those that come from different cultures that might need some assistance in thinking through the experiences that they're having. And, and mental health and mental well-being isn't necessarily something that a lot of communities or individuals, for that matter, talk a lot about. So is, is it difficult for people to um, choose to identify that this is something that they would like some assistance with? So I have a bit of a controversial take in this space. Um, so my controversial take in this space is we often hear the word oh, mental health. Um, there's a stigma around mental health and often marginalised communities, especially racially diverse communities, they, um, they have stigmas around speaking about mental health. Um, and my pushback around this is that there is no stigma around well-being and, and what mental health means. All communities care about themselves as individuals, but also as a community. If you think of the refugee communities um, as someone who is uh, a refugee um, background, there's nothing more caring than fleeing your country for a future generation to have better life outcomes than what is happening for you. So when I think of whether or not communities care about the well-being of individuals and others, they do because they are saying, often saying, hey, we need help around this area. I think what their stigma is around 
is around illness, around mental illness. And that stigma exists within all communities because it is something that people who experience uh, mental illnesses or who are diagnosed have had a history of experiencing marginalization as a result of it and have been, have experienced being excluded, being treated differently and having poorer well-being outcomes because of it. And I think when you add the layers of people's identities, there's worse and worse outcomes historically for people. So the stigma around illness, um, especially mental illness, <laughs> we just think a few decades ago, people used to be in prison yeah. <laughs> um, for mental illnesses. So I definitely think that, that, that that's there. And um, that is something that all communities, um, in, in particular marginalised communities, can work on and we are working on. But the, the conversation about well-being and taking care of ourselves, I think the most uh, marginalised people are the ones who are the loudest around well-being and mental wellness um, because they know how bad it can get to the yeah. point of when, you know, you talk about people ending their lives because of things being so bad for them. And if we have... Uh, uh, such a prevalence of small pockets of communities having high statistics around ending their life or having um, poor mental health outcomes, then we can, other than saying, hey, there's something wrong with those specific individuals, which is inappropriate, we can actually start thinking what is happening around them that is causing people to choose not to be here um, than, than to be here. Yeah. So I, I think that's... Yeah, hopefully that kind of resonates. Oh, absolutely. And I do think that you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter who you talk to. Mental illness tends to, one, suggest something's wrong and potentially permanently wrong, but also it's it's in your mind or in your brain. So it's not something you can readily see. It's not like you broke your leg. It's, it's something up there that's sort of um, quite difficult to put your finger on exactly what that is and nobody knows how severe or not it is. So using that terminology doesn't necessarily help. Uh, I am intrigued, uh, um, intrigued by the fact that there is a lot of talk about we should be more open about talking about mental illness. But given that most people are a little bit uncertain as to how to deal with it, um, I'm wondering whether or not openness or open discussion is something that would be valuable should society be talking more about mental illness or should we be talking more about um resilience or our capacity to deal with the the fluctuations of what happens from day to day i think again maybe another controversial take i think especially when i'm talking to marginalized communities especially when i'm talking to people who by nature of their marginalization are resilient as a default if you exist and can thrive in systems where you are not counted in terms of your health outcomes, if you can experience marginalization, if you can, if you are advocating for legal rights, um, things that some people are privileged enough to get as a default, then you are resilient. That exists within you already because you are born that way. I often talk about my mum and being like, how can I teach my mum to be resilient when she walked from a country to come to here? So I'm thinking, okay, that 
can be quite offensive to some people to talk about resilience. Um, I think, so that's how my stance, my <laughs> controversial stance on resilience. But what we can talk about, I think, is the, the spectrum of conversation that exists around well-being, in particular mental well-being and, or mental health, because it is a spectrum conversation. There is a space to talk about illness because it exists and it should be destigmatized and people should receive support around it. And some of that support is um, through a practitioner, through medication, through communities. There are so many different ways that people receive support around mental illness that we should be able to psychoeducate and normalize those conversations. But we should also and part of those conversations, and I think this is the reason why conversation is important, is it means that it opens the door for other conversations around preventative things. If we start talking about the challenges that people have, then we can, it's not just focusing on the challenge, you're, you're inadvertently talking about the things that you overcome, right? So, yes, the XYZ is a challenge. So, again, I'll use my mum as an example. Coming to Australia and not speaking the language was a challenge, Um and having a, uh, being a single parent with a child and not knowing anything was awful. However, there are things that we can gain from that um, from that story, which is like how people overcome experiences of marginalizations until the system, until we can make historic change. What is it through community? Is it through advocacy? Is it through changing particular and finding these narratives? around what works is how we create systemic change. And often uh, people's well-being outcomes change, not just from the specific intervention that you use, because a therapist is not a magician. They spend, you know, 15 minutes to maybe two hours, depending on who you're with, talking about particular interventions that they might do, whether it's art-based or, you know, hypnotherapy, but they, they do a particular in uh, intervention. But then you go off and live the rest of your life um, for a week or two weeks or a month. So there are other things in, that incorporate wellness that might include community. It might include your work. It might include your family. So when we are talking about having these conversations, it's talking about the whole, the worldview. What are the things that we need to support that is not just hey, everyone needs to see a therapist. Tigas, how, how do you go about describing where we would like people to be? How do you go about talking about the, the, the sort of position that people should feel comfortable in within um, their own world uh, rather than talking about resilience necessarily or happiness? What's, what's the way of describing where we would like people to, to be their best selves? Um, oh, that's a very broad question. I think when I'm talking to communities about understanding self and understanding where you're at, I think it's, and a lot of people already have the answers to this and some of it's just being really intentional. It's around, firstly, understanding who you are and your intersectional experiences. So who is Tigis and what are her experiences as a cisgendered woman, as someone who has a refugee background, as someone who's had X, Y, Z things. And I've, I've, what are the challenges I face? And what are the strengths that I have that I can, um, so whether it's community resources, family resources, finances, and what are the, you know, the, the barriers to some of the supports that I need and how do I move forward? And 
sometimes we can't, not sometimes, a lot of the time, we can't out-therapy someone's experiences of homelessness, for example, because that's not a an intervention. That is someone's real experiencing of lack of housing or someone's experience of uh, ongoing racism or, or family violence. Or So while we can do crisis intervention and support, I think really understanding self and when I'm talking to my community about these things, I go, okay, where are you at? What's going on? And surprisingly, for a lot of people, they're like, actually, I'm doing pretty okay. These are the areas that I need support in. Some of them might be great with a therapist. But some of them, it's like, you know what, Tigas, I actually need someone to help me with employment um, because, you know, I experience a lot of barriers because I have a really ethnic sounding name. And one of the things that I can do to get support around that. And yes, I can provide therapeutic support about how disappointing that is and how challenging that is. But there is a real systemic issue that we're trying to address here that I as a therapist can't address. Mm -hmm. But I can acknowledge and support you through that process. Um, So ideally, you want people to kind of be understanding where they're at, Mm -hmm. what are the things that are, you know, they're having difficulties with, and where are the things that they they need support? Yeah, sort of understanding self and then deciding what is it I can actually control and do something about and feel comfortable about doing something in that space. Now, for you, one of the things that you feel very strongly about is this whole space in which you operate day in, day out, and and the area of advocacy. Um, how, how did you, well, one, how did you come to be interested in this space in the first place? But also, how do you now identify the best opportunities to do that advocacy? Mm-hmm. So, Nasalithi and I, um, my co-founder, um, we were having a real difficult time while still polar psychology because people, this is during um, 2020 when we experienced the first wave of COVID, but also the um, the hyper visibility of the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement. And people are talking about these things in therapy going, you know, these are difficulties I'm having. And Nasalipi and I were also having difficulties around this space because we are we too are people who exist in a world where this is happening. And we realize that there are particular limitations that we have as therapists one-on-one. So part of the re-envisioning of our work as a practice and changing it to a practice and having that worldview approach is that what are the, the benefits that I have as a therapist? And one of the benefits that I have is that people actually listen to me outside of the therapist space. <laughs> so one of the things, the privileges that I have is that I can be an advocate for some of these things and create change as someone who has the um, the access to things like government, um, but as well as um, other services and organizations. So I use the example of someone experiencing racism in their workplace. I can utilize my knowledges and work with the organizations to be anti-racist or to be more thoughtful about um, well-being and burnout so that the individual, because it's not the individual's responsibility to not be racist because they, they are not racist. <laughs> they're they're, they're the, the person who's being victimized in this space. So being able to be an advocate in that role means that we can go and create systemic change through a different pathway that doesn't hurt the people that we're seeing, but can 
eventually trickle down and kind of make that impact. Because if we can educate those people who are in control of the environments that our clients are working in, then maybe our clients' experiences won't actually be about, I had this racist experience in my workplace, let's deal with that. It might be something else. So that's the way we, we have decided to do that work. And um, we, we take the scientist practitioner model of doing research as well as doing the work and then education at the same time. So it's quite like a, a circle that's constantly happening. Um, and we do the same thing within communities as well because we heard things from our clients saying, my mum doesn't understand these things or my siblings don't get it. My, you know, my pastor, my imam doesn't understand. So we go out to communities and do um, introductionary workshops or, you know, trauma-informed workshops around those beginning preventative conversations around particular topics because that's not everyone has to go to therapy, but people kind of had to people want to learn these things and we as communities sometimes learn better in groups and so we can hear it a lot better so that's kind of how we've decided to utilize the privileges that we have to make a systemic difference are, are you seeing any impact tickets from the work that you're doing definitely i i definitely hear it because what i'm hearing from organizations for example is that they actually want to create more healthy workplaces that are inclusive and diverse, but they don't necessarily have the tools or strategies to be able to do that. Um, and then that's where, because at the end of the day, people want to change. So being able to give people the tools for change means that people's experiences can be better down the track. It's just a long game. And I, I'm definitely seeing, you know, over time, I think COVID has resulted in the amplification of well-being and mental health to be at the forefront of conversations because something as extreme as COVID and the pandemic probably won't happen again for a long time. So it's pushed these conversations 10 years further than probably where it would have. So I'm definitely seeing the impact of organisations taking these conversations. Communities, I've had aunties, uncles, parents, grandparents being like, we need to have a conversation about mental health and What's the difference between um, going to the hospital and, you know, going to a therapist? Because, you know, some communities think that if someone goes to a therapist, their child is going to be institutionalized because maybe that's what happened in their country. Mm. Or maybe that's their only experience of well, um, well-being intervention. So I, I'm seeing that through the demand and the uptake of well-being services in community spaces, individual spaces and in organisations. Yeah. Tigas, I think we should acknowledge the fact that you, um, both of you at, at uh, Polar Psychology are undertaking some research in order to provide tools for any psychologist or counsellor to be able to to have a culturally responsive way of, of um, talking to any client that might come in their door. So I think that's um, it's really a very clear example of the great work that you're doing um, and that um, uh, importance of the research that you're bringing to play in in informing how others can actually follow your uh, your record, your guidance in uh, ensuring that, given that we live in a diverse society, that uh, we can actually provide these services regardless of whose door somebody might knock on. Um, I'm I'm interested just as a final piece, I guess, is to really ask you about how do you think 
this approach, this way of being able to better uh, service and understand our communities through a, a mental wellbeing framework contributes to social cohesion? I think the it, the way it contributes to so, social cohesion is that some of the issues that arise for people that ensure that social cohesion doesn't happen um, can be addressed preventatively through culturally responsive practice by understanding people's lived experience and what's going on for them in the context of where they're at. It means that you're responding to some of the factors that people are having this response to. So if you're, if you're noticing that there's a huge disengagement in education with young people from a particular background, then you can then prioritize that and be like, okay, what is happening? What is the experience of that young person that results in disengagement in school? So we can take 10, 15 steps back and start responding to it. And I think as a result, by acknowledging and validating people's experiences, it means that we can truly understand what are the barriers for social cohesion. Because it might not be education. It might, and most often, is similar to that iceberg, right? <laughs> Where all you can see is what's above the water mm -hmm. and not what's below. And what we're trying to do um, through social cohesion, but most importantly, I think for us, through culturally responsive practices, is to see what the roots and what's underneath the water that's resulting in this one presentation that we see. Because if you just simply respond to the symptom, we're not actually looking at the cause of this. And I think when it has been done effectively, then you will see a more cohesive society because a cohesive, because a cohesive society is a society that understands people's diverse experiences and understands what can impact them and works towards uh, a society that um, ensures that marginalization doesn't happen, but also ensures that people receive equitable practices, mm -hmm. that people um, are able to engage and not be in that survival mode all the time. So I think that's that's how it, you know social cohesion plays into that. That is the end outcome that we want. <laughs> Absolutely, you know that uh, that iceberg analogy is. Uh, just a, an incredibly useful paradigm in so many different situations, but uh, but perfect in this one. So, Tigist, I'm just delighted to have spent this time talking to you and thank you so much for sharing so much of your knowledge with us and with our audience. We're just um, incredibly grateful. So thank you so much. Hi, Faisal. How are you? I'm very good, Anthea. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> Feel better after that conversation with Tigist about uh, mental well-being? Yes, and um, particularly around some of those controversial topics as she said. I liked that each time she prefaced it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the way she put it, I don't think they sound controversial at all. It was really common sense. Yeah, I really like the fact that she puts a lot of emphasis on prevention. Yeah. Um, helping people to... to plan for and prepare for the future yeah. um, and build on their own strengths. So I think all of those things were really important. And you alluded to it right at the end about the iceberg. I think it's, it's a really good reminder for anyone that's, you know, working with people from whatever backgrounds really mm -hmm. in, you know, community development to settlement surface or whatever, whatever space you end up being in that 
there are so many other things that inform how someone might respond to something. You're really only seeing a presentation Absolutely. of a person. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I thought it was really good the way she picked up on the term, or, or at least helped me to pick up on the term of resilience, Yeah, that we do use it a lot yeah. to talk about how where people should be thinking, you know, being resilient. But it's got... It's got so many different connotations. Yeah. Uh, it's almost a, you know, suck it up and just get on with things yeah. type of uh, 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 meaning to it these days. So. Do you think there's maybe, like, what do you see as that social cohesion lens on mental health? Do you think that, you know, because she did talk about her view on what a cohesive society is when yeah. it comes to mental health. What did you think of that? No, I, I, I agree with her in the way that she talked about it. I I think there is there are things that people want to can, want to discuss in private, mm. and then there's how do we as a society mm. address help people feel comfortable to seek out the help when they need it, yeah. but not necessarily make it a, a burdensome mm. element uh, for society overall. And I think that's that's a real challenge to get that right. I think that is kind of the thing that I've been conscious of lately is we have so much more emphasis on mental health and, you know, so much even in our studies, you know, whenever we release a mapping social cohesion, mm -hmm. people talking about, you know, mental health and discrimination and all these other yeah. parts. But, yeah, something Tigus said really sticks out to me is not everything is done in therapy and they're not magicians. Absolutely. So there's so many other societal preventative things that we need to look at more carefully before mm -hmm. we go down just that therapy route. Yeah, yeah. And, and helping people to be able to cope with the things they can't control or can't yeah. have an impact on, like homelessness, for instance. Yeah. She's absolutely right. These are how do we bring these conversations into thinking about systems mm. and uh, and the sorts of um, uh, uh, challenges or, or rocks, if you like, that people come up against yeah. and can't necessarily find a way around? Um, it, it's a challenge. Yeah, well, there's a lot to, th to think about after that conversation. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that was yeah. great. Terrific. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Voices of Australia podcast, brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by me, Faisal Farah, and with audio, visual, recording and editing by John Bigelow from Interactive Media Solutions. Research for each episode is provided by Agalos Makdujorjos and Matthew Skidmore. Original music is by Steve Klapsinos. Learn more about the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute and all its works by visiting the website www.scanlaninstitute.org.au